Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 15 of Push Dose EMS, brought to you by Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I am your host, Jeff Matcha, the Clinical Education and QA Manager for Milwaukee County. Uh, joining me today for our discussion is a host of regular voices that you've become familiar with. Uh, working down my list, I see uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Uh, EMS Fellow, Dr. Brandon, Brandon Drezich. Uh, Dr. Hey, Drezich, welcome. Nice to be here again. And since you flipped the mic open, uh, also EMS Fellow, Dr. Nico Rendovich. Dr. Rendovich, welcome. Howdy, howdy. Uh, EMS Division Director Dan Pozier. Welcome, Dan. Hey, everybody. Uh, QA Supervisor Linda Matrish. Welcome, Linda. Hi, everybody. And Assistant Medical Director for Education, Dr. Matt Chin. Dr. Chin, welcome. Thanks for having me. Welcome, everybody. Glad you could join me for another month of the podcast here. Uh, this month, we are starting to dive into trauma. Uh, for departments out there in our system, you'll start seeing your simulation training signups coming around and our team is starting to head out your way. Uh, the focus for this fall is going to be pretty heavily around trauma. Uh, some reminders, updates, changes, uh, just some good overall training in trauma as we've been dealing with a lot of medical lately, uh, especially focused around the COVID. So Figured it'd be a nice change of pace for you, but before we dive too quickly into the topic, uh, as per usual, we'll do some updates. So from the system, Dan. Thanks, Jeff. Hello again, everybody. Uh, just a couple of quick updates here for the system. Uh, you guys should have all received your brand new Shiny's old X-Series Advanced monitors, uh, hopefully by now. Uh, those uh, will be part, part of the uh, study that's upcoming with the medical college. Uh, the study date is still TBD, but the fact that we have the devices in hand is good, and um, things seem to be moving forward there. They're still certainly uh, trying to figure out some of the protocols related around the study. So please don't break those monitors. Take care of them. Uh, second, there is an opportunity for all EMS providers of all levels, EMT all the way up to paramedic, uh, to participate in a small study at the children's hospital uh, so what you can do there is set up an appointment and i will share this contact information with all of your ems liaisons they've been informed of this before but we're going to send out a reminder uh, it's, it's like they're looking for some more participants but what you do is you go to the emergency department for just about an hour assess anywhere from five to ten patients uh, and this is focused really around uh, the pain scale in the pediatric population uh, and then once you're done with that, after about an hour of work, you will receive a $75 Visa gift card to go spend on whatever you choose. And finally, congratulations to our system for achieving the gold status in Mission Lifeline. So this is for providing excellent pre-hospital cardiac care to our citizens. Thank you all for the hard work and the excellent job. Excellent. Thanks, Dan. And... From the medical direction team, Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. So we'll just go through a couple items real quick. Um, be remiss not to mention COVID. Unfortunately, uh, COVID continues in our community. So our case numbers have uh, reached somewhat of a steady plateau. Uh, we'll cautiously see what direction they go. Uh, I think especially cautious with back to school coming up, with uh, cooler weather coming, and with the trends that we're seeing 
uh, nationally and statewide. So continue to take precautions. Uh, and the best precaution you can take if you have not already is to get vaccinated. Remember, the vaccine uh, now fully approved by the FDA uh, prevents the likelihood of infection by three times. Uh, it makes you seven times less likely to get symptoms with infection. Uh, and it makes you more than 25 times less likely to get hospitalized or die if you get infected with COVID. So the vaccine is safe. Uh, it's effective. Please get vaccinated uh, and please reach out. Reach out to anyone in our system, but reach out to me directly if you want with questions uh, about the vaccine. I'd be happy to talk through it. Uh, next up, just to echo Dan, Mission Lifeline, uh, an outstanding accomplishment for our system. Gold for the sixth year in a row, uh, showing excellence in cardiac care, specifically in STEMI care pre-hospital. So doing a great service to our patient. That's also reflected in our CARES data. We shared that at the last admin review meeting. Um, that data uh, is very promising for the trajectory that our system is taking in uh, cardiac arrest data as well. Uh, and lastly, just uh, a mention, I did take a new position in the county uh, as the chief health policy advisor to the county executive uh, and his office. Uh, very honored to have that position. And as far as our EMS system, uh, things should not change. Dr. Engel will be uh, stepping up a little more than he did before, um, but I will remain on as system medical director uh, in addition to this other role. So excited to have these dual roles and continue to strengthen the health in Milwaukee County. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Back to you. Thanks, Dr. Wilson, and congratulations on the new appointment. That's fantastic. Uh, bringing us back around to topic of the day, uh, of the month even. We are talking trauma and specifically thoracic trauma, chest traumas. Uh, we've seen a couple uh, of these cases come through our CQI process, and we'll get into a few of those a little bit later. Uh, but we thought it was a great opportunity to, to talk chest, chest trauma. That's a lot of T's and C's all together this morning. Uh, so as I'm going to continue to stumble over my words, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Dr. Chin to talk a little bit about pathophysiology in some of those uh, thoracic traumas. Dr. Chin. Yeah, Jeff, thanks uh, so much for handing it over. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak again on the pathophysiology, which may be some people's most favorite part of this podcast. Uh, but uh, we're just going to talk a little bit about uh, chest trauma in particular, some of the underlying um, things that we can see associated with that, and hopefully give you a lead in here to Dr. Undervish and Dr. Dragic talking a little bit about some of the uh, interventions that we have for our system. So specifically, when we talk about chest trauma, we have to kind of talk about the different systems that are involved. So predominantly, we talk about, you know, the bony structures. Um, so those that make the chest wall, the chest wall really functions um, for two main purposes. One is to facilitate respirations, right, to allow contraction of the diaphragm, uh, the intercostal muscle contraction, it really gives you the opportunity to uh, perform inspiration. And then and kind of the opposite of that, obviously causing uh, expiration. Uh, and then additionally, it also serves as a, a kind of a bony rigid structure to protect the internal contents of the thorax, which predominantly include the heart and lungs. So using the rib cage on the anterior and lateral portions, um, the clavicles on the anterior portions, and then really the scapulas and the posterior portion of the thorax there to protect those internal organs. Uh, and then as we move into the other systems that are really present within the, uh, the chest, we look at, you know, cardiovascular issues. Uh, so uh, tra trauma in the chest can really be divided usually into two main categories, those being blunt and penetrating. Uh, and from a cardiovascular standpoint, um, you know, we look at the heart. So is there a penetrating or blunt injury to the heart that causes 
um, some sort of direct myocardial injury? Does the patient have a a pericardial effusion or a pericardial tamponade as an etiology for the shock that they may be experiencing after trauma to the chest. Um, the other large things that are inside the chest wall are obviously lungs. So do you have direct damage to the lungs or the airways? Do you have tracheobronchial disruption where you can't oxygenate or ventilate anymore? Do you have damage to the lungs or bleeding or air leakage, uh, you know, pneumothorax or hemothorax, those things that uh, in particular tension pneumothorax that we can manage in the field. And then we'll go over that a little bit later in the podcast as well. Um, there's also the ability to have pulmonary contusions or very, you know, prominent bruises to the lungs, which can cause problems, obviously, with oxygenation uh, in a chest trauma patient. Uh, and then there's things like the great vessels. So, you know, your uh, SVC and IVC all come together there. Um, you have aortic, the opportunity for an aortic injury uh, into the chest wall from both penetrating and blunt trauma as well, too. Obviously, those can be very small, like intimal tears or little tears in just the single portion of the wall of those blood vessels, or you can have complete transect of those great vessels, which obviously uh, is a devastating injury to the chest. Uh, and then kind of uh, you have some mediastinal structures, so esophagus and all those types of things where you can have damage to those structures in the chest wall that lead to complications associated with that as well too. Um, so when you put that all together, obviously there's the very uh, large proportion of important structures that are located within the chest and thorax. Uh, for which damage can cause a multitude of different uh, injury patterns, but all of which can be pretty significant, uh, as you've seen. Uh, and then we know that chest trauma accounts for probably anywhere from 20 to 30% of the fatal injuries from trauma uh, as a cause. So, you know, thinking about that uh, is part of the reason why we're trying to talk about it on this podcast, because there's a lot of morbidity and mortality associated with it. And also because our trauma guidelines really focus on the life-saving interventions that you can do to manage some of these, uh, you know, dangerous uh, mechanisms for um, increased mortality by, by performing thoracostomy or pericardiocentesis or some of the other things that might be addressed later in this podcast. So um, hopefully that gives you just the beef background on kind of uh, the chest uh, and pathophysiology there. And with that, I'll hand it back over to Jeff to kind of uh, move us along here. Thanks, Dr. Chin. So with all that information that Dr. Chin was able to provide us uh, on the anatomy, the pathophysic, kind of all of that structure that's happening within the thorax, uh, we can take a deeper dive and a look into the uh, different kind of injury patterns that we see in thoracic trauma, uh, as well as some of the assessments for our trauma patients and interventions. And for that, uh, we're going to bring in Dr. Rendovich. Uh, Dr. Redovich, I attempted to come up with another pun for you this week. I knew you appreciated the one last time. Uh, however, everything that I came up with was a little bit too blunt. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and turn it over to you. Uh, for ah, some that was a good one. That was beautiful. Yeah. You really got to my heart there. I'm here for you. Well, talking about chest trauma here, I think the most important thing to do is start with a great anecdote. You know, I remember every dumb kid, myself mostly included, and usually podcast presenters at this point in my life. Always like to have a dumb hypothetical to go along with it. When I was younger, I always had the question, if I had to get shot somewhere, where would it be? Well, after four years of being an ER doc, training in a place with a heavy amount of gun violence, I'll tell you right now, it's definitely not going to be in the chest. So that said, let's get into some of the assessments and managements of chest trauma. Before we get too deep into this, I think it's important to try to reframe how we see the anatomy. As you can imagine, as, as we have heard in our pathophys section, there's not a lot of unimportant stuff in the chest. In fact, it's so important, it really is the center of your ABCs. When it comes to chest trauma, 
we should probably think of it in terms of compartments. You essentially have three parts, two pleural compartments and your mediastinum. Your pleural compartments consist of your lungs and the pleura, which is the membrane surrounding the thorax. And then your mediastinum, as Dr. Chin mentioned earlier, contains your heart, your aorta, your esophagus, as well as your trachea. Now, when these compartments get violated or they have increases in pressure, this is usually what causes people to die. When the compartments end up being open to the air or exposed to the outside, they just tend to not be as effective. And as we mentioned, surrounding all these compartments is the rib cage, which aside from protection, play that role with inspiration, as Dr. Chin mentioned. Alongside each of these ribs are a series of nerves, veins, and arteries, which when torn, tend to hurt and bleed quite a bit and cause a lot of complications. Now, when we look at the treatments and the assessments, it's good to remember that your treatment is only as good as your patient assessment. When it comes to trauma, the initial approach should really be quick and methodical, and most importantly, should be performed early and performed often, not dissimilar from voting in Chicago. So get your vitals and perform your primary survey. Assess your airway, your breathing, your circulation. Do it on scene early. Do it before you get into the ambulance and you end up not being able to hear anything over the sound of the engine. You know if these are in good shape, you know you at least have a few minutes to reassess the patient. When you do your secondary exam, take a good look. Uh, take off the clothes of the patient. Look for holes, deformities, bruising, abnormal, unequal chest movements, points of severe tenderness along the chest wall, or even signs of air under the skin, that crispy feeling of the skin that looks like uh, fried chicken. Really, we call that subcutaneous emphysema. A good secondary exam really involves exposing and pressing, pressing everywhere along the chest wall, as well as the rest of the body. And if anything changes with the patient, the patient's status, worsening pain, trouble breathing, vitals changing and becoming more unstable, repeat your primary exam and intervene as needed. Sometimes your primary exam is going to be limited by external factors, right? You're sitting in the back of the ambulance, going down the highway, Listening for bilateral breath sounds is probably not going to be that easy. So a lot of times you have to take into account those other external factors and the clinical, uh, clinical gestalt that you've developed over years of doing this job. And when we look at the pathology behind these, we'll start with talking about the two most life-threatening pathologies, which you can actually intervene on in the pre-hospital setting. We'll talk today about a little bit about tension pneumothorax in this case. The reason I brought up the compartment idea is because this is the whole idea of another type of compartment syndrome. When this part of your lung gets injured, air can accumulate and create this positive pressure inside that compartment. As that air starts to fill up in that cavity, it starts to actually push along the mediastinum and can actually lead to this traumatic cardiac arrest. What actually ends up happening in this case is you're not able to get blood flow back into your heart and your heart's not able to pump, so you die. The signs and symptoms you'll see on this the classic teaching is usually hypoxia, tachycardia, tachypnea, low blood pressure, and they used to always talk about tracheal deviation from away from the injured side. Truthfully, I've seen a lot of pneumothorax. I've never actually seen this before, but it's a nice thing to look for. You can notice those reduced breath sounds on the injured side, but again, if you're in an ambulance, it's going to be very difficult to hear. And sometimes you might be able to feel that subcutaneous air, which can give you a lot of a clue of what's going on. Some of these aren't immediate hence the need for continuous reassessments of the patient. Sometimes in the initial injury, you'll get a small pneumothorax and with time, 10, 15, 20 minutes, that air will start to accumulate, the patient's status will change and the pneumothorax will go from a simple pneumothorax or a traumatic pneumothorax to a tension pneumothorax. 
your life-saving intervention for this is going to be needle placement and releasing of the pressure of that compartment. The location that you're going to aim for is your, between your fourth and fifth intercostal space. This is very difficult to determine exactly where that is, depending on the patient's body habitus. You're going to be doing this in the mid-axillary line, so around the area of the armpit. You're going to aim for being above the fifth rib. This is designed to be what we call the triangle of safety, where there's not a lot of vessels or a lot of muscles that can get into the way. As I said, this is a very difficult thing to assess for, and we'll be talking about a new product that will be getting evaluated soon called the Thoracite, which is going to nicely outline your target so there's not as much counting or guesswork. Alternatively, if you look into your guidelines, you can still do your second intercostal space in the mid-clavicle area. Again, you don't have to sit there and necessarily count how many ribs you can. If you can, you should do it. If not, it's usually about two to three finger breaths down from the clavicle. When you place this 14 gauge needle, you should be doing it with a 90 degree angle to the skin and you should leave it open to the air so it can leak out. The typical thought was that if you get this punctured in, you should be able to hear a rush of air. And sometimes you'll hear that if you're in the setting of attention pneumothorax, but sometimes the scene is chaotic enough where you might not. If there's any questions about this, make sure to look into the OEM guidelines for more information. Anytime that we have a traumatic arrest, this is something that should be considered and should be intervened on. The second thing we're gonna talk about here is cardiac tamponade. So this is the mediastinal compartment where it can fill with blood and making it very difficult for the heart to beat properly. This can actually happen in both blunt and penetrating trauma, though more frequently occurs in penetrating trauma. This can appear very similar to a pneumothorax, which makes this complicated. And you'll hear these typical stories of people showing up with JVD. If you have a person that undergoes a cardiac arrest in the setting of trauma, as I mentioned with the tension pneumothorax, you should really consider pericardiosynthesis and you should really consider this very early. Don't hesitate on doing this. If you're in the middle of chest compressions, it's worth noting that if your heart compartment is full of blood, you're not gonna be able to squeeze that properly anyways. You should be aiming to have this pericardial synthesis done to relieve the pressure. This is one of those things where you can stop doing your chest compressions for a short period of time, drain it and restart it if you need to. The way this is gonna be done is you're gonna take your large needle at a 45 degree angle on the left side between the left seventh rib and the xiphoid process. To make it simple, that's the part where your chest starts to run out of ribs and in the middle. Don't bother counting this, just find where your ribs end and be on the left side of the patient. Insert the needle with a little bit of continuous back pressure suction and advance it towards the patient's left mid-clavicle or shoulder at that 45-degree angle. When you enter into that mediastinal space, you should be able to get a flow of blood. At that point, you want to be able to leave the needle there and attach a stopcock to it because there's always a good chance that these things will continue to fill up with blood and will need to be redrained again. Those are the two most crucial interventions where in the pre-hospital setting, we can have some life-saving interventions. Some of the other things that we have to consider here are sucking chest wounds. So these are going to be your injuries to the chest wall, usually penetrating in these cases where there's exposure of the pleura to the outside air. Essentially what ends up happening is you have this communication between the pleura and the outside. Air rushes in through this wound during inspiration and really limits the amount of air that can escape on expiration. This ends up looking like a one-way valve. And a lot of times these can look very similar to simple or tension pneumothoraxes. 
If you look in our guidelines, the idea is to place this chest seal on, which actually has this one-way valve. When doing this, this is important because it'll help the patient with inspiration, but we have to keep an eye on this because if the one-way valve on the chest seal ends up getting occluded, it can actually lead to tension in the thorax. The last thing I wanna hit on here is rib fractures. Now, it's a very common thing to be seen in any chest trauma. In fact, about two thirds of patients being admitted to the hospital end up having a series of rib fractures. This place fractures, where they're not in line anymore, are more likely to cause damage to the underlying pleural tissues and those intercostal neurovascular bundles, so those nerves and arteries and veins that we have along the rib sides. And those are the ones that can actually lead to pneumothoraxes and hemothoraxes, respectively. A good amount of these patients are just going to have severe pain from their rib fractures, as well as issues with breathing, which lead them to respiratory splinting. Now, I actually never put a lot of thought into what it meant by respiratory splinting. You know, just like we splint people with a broken arm to make sure that their arms don't cause pain with movements, people tend to breathe far more shallow to prevent those ribs from moving as well. So pain control is going to be crucial for these people. And the last thing we consider is something called flail chest. This is essentially where three or more ribs are broken at two different points. So you get this segment that's no longer connected to the rest of the cage. And you'll see these people have what they describe as paradoxical chest wall movements. It's relatively rare, but it's the people that when you expect the ribs to be going one way, a section of it will be going the other. This is why it's important to do a good assessment because if you're not looking at this person's chest and they're not exposed, this is something that's gonna be easy to be missed. These people tend to hypoventilate, not take in large breaths due to pain. So again, pain control is going to be very important for these people. And you can actually help these people by putting a mild bit of pressure on that flail segment. So once these things are recognized and our interventions are attempted, you'll go in one of two directions, right? You're either gonna transport these people to a hospital or they're gonna get 1099. When we look at penetrating chest wall injuries or chest wall, our chest wall instability or deformities, we know these people need to go directly to a trauma center. You can look at your OEM triage field guideline or trauma triage guidelines to give you a better idea of where these will go. And if there's any concerns with the level of the injury, the amount of intrusion in blunt trauma or MVCs, make sure to take these people to a trauma center for definitive management. If we go down the 1099 route, continue to use your MTAC format. We've been listening through a lot of the online medical controls and you guys are starting to do a great job. This is just a great reminder that when the online medical control doc gets a call for a 1099, we actually have a form that follows the same MTAC format. When you guys follow the format, great. It allows us to follow the format, great. There's less repetition of questions. And as I'm sure you guys are always happy to have less time spent on the, less time spent on the phone. So it's just easier information to digest and recall and give recommendations. So in summary, remember, good assessments save lives. Good reassessments and good clinical judgments are the things that really maintain them. Perform your life-saving interventions early. No chest trauma should die without needles in their chest and their heart. Realistically, you can't make a person more dead. So making sure that we can try to find these reversible things is extremely important. Remember your pain control when people come in with chest trauma and keep using your MTAC format. Thank you guys very much. I'll pass this off to Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Rendovich. Uh, some great information there. Some really nice reminders on uh, those key points when we're assessing our patients uh, and to certainly use those life-saving interventions 
when applicable as soon as we can. Uh, we bring that up uh, as a nice transition over to uh, Dr. Drazich and Linda to talk us through some of our CQI cases, uh, which might illustrate some of these points. So Dr. Drazich, Linda, take it away. Hi, everybody. We, when talking about chest trauma, we looked at a few cases we could discuss that represent uh, typical cases that are reviewed by our QA team, uh, things that uh, cover chest trauma, LSIs, traumatic arrest, uh, placement of needle thoracostomy and transport destinations. Um, so our first case is a case of blunt traumatic arrest uh, with ROS. Uh, and the QA concern in this case was a great job getting ROSC, uh, but we want to encourage crews to continue to um, include all, S all LSIs, um, including thoracentesis and or pericardiocentesis. Um, in this case, this was a uh, call at about 4 a.m. It was an MVC, 38-year-old male, uh, vehicle traveling at a high rate of speed, uh, struck multiple objects, um, vehicle had major front and, and roof damage, rolled numerous times, and the patient was ejected from the vehicle and found in the street. EMS initiated CPR right away on arrival. Um, patient was in a PEA rate of about 110 with uh, agonal respirations, uh, very large wound on the hip area, and uh, fluids were run wide open, and after eight minutes, ROSC was achieved. At that time, the patient was tachycardic, respiratory rate was eight, uh, patient remained unresponsive and hypotensive. Uh, the crew continued to run fluids, place a seat collar, and patient remained unresponsive on arrival to the ED with a slight improvement in the blood pressure. Dr. Drazik? Thanks so much, Linda. Like so many of our cases, this exemplifies the fantastic care we provide in the field, as well as exhibit some big learning points that I think we all can take a lot away from. I think the big, big, uh, the big, big accomplishment in this case is achieving Rusk. And reviewing the case, I would venture a guess that the biggest life-saving intervention done in this case was actually probably the fluid given to the patient. Now, I can't say this definitively for sure, but um, what we want to remember here is unlike medical arrests, the issue in trauma is generally not pump failure of the heart. This is not because the heart has stopped beating effectively. It's not in a weird rhythm or anything like that. The primary reason why a traumatic patient will experience cardiac arrest is other causes. So I wanna just start out here by, um, by reminding everyone, don't make the mistake of overemphasizing ACLS. You know, CPR, um, those chest compressions, while they might be somewhat uh, uh, useful for a time here, it doesn't really address the underlying issue. And of course, we don't give epinephrine or defibrillate these cases because again, it's not the heart that is the issue here. So the causes that I wanna stress that I think we can take away from this case is that in traumatic cardiac arrest, the things that are going on are structural and physical. That is, 
the heart's not working well, not because the pump isn't working, but because it's not filled well, because there's hypovolemia or hemorrhage, because it can't pump forward well, because there's tension pneumothorax or hemothorax, or because it can't pump forward well, because that heart compartment is filled with blood in the case of pericardiac uh, tamponade. And of course, there are other cases when there's also brain injury that decreases cardiorespiratory status. So just to repeat that, remember, in cases of traumatic cardiac arrest, the use of CPR, while in our guidelines, it doesn't address the things that are going on underneath here. So again, I suspect in this case, the RASC was really by providing volume support to the patient, potentially um, improving some of that lost blood. Now, looking at this case, we did have a great outcome um, in the field. We got ROSC on this patient, we got them to the trauma center. Now at the trauma center, they were discovered to have a pneumothorax on uh, their left side. And I think this reminds us that we wanna really be sure to use all of those life-saving interventions that we think of in traumatic cardiac arrests. Those are the things that are going to address what is going on, what has caused someone to um, not have pulses from a trauma. So those things, of course, you start with your high quality CPR, but the pump might be functioning. It probably is functioning. Maybe there's not enough blood to fill it. So then, you know, we wanna think through our hemorrhage control, whether that's a finger or a tourniquet. Now in this case, it's chest trauma. So, right, there's nothing we can do there. So we turn to that chest compartment. What are those obstructive causes? Well, tension pneumothorax, um, hemothorax, pericardiac tamponade. So anytime you have a patient who has a traumatic cardiac arrest in the field that doesn't meet the 1099 criteria initially, you want to do all of these. You want to start with your CPR. You want to pay, place bilateral needles in the chest. You want to do the, uh, you want to place a needle to assess for and hopefully remove some fluid of that blood around the heart. Uh, and you wanna oxygenate and ventilate appropriately. I think a lot of these cases we know have pretty poor outcomes um, from traumatic cardiac arrest. A lot of them don't make it from the field. But if you do have signs of life, if there are those indicators that say this is a potentially survivable injury, you wanna go ahead and make sure to do all of the things to address what could be causing the underlying arrest. So with that, I will uh, turn this back over to you, Linda, to move on to our next case. Our next case is a penetrating trauma case, in this, uh, in this case, a gunshot wound, uh, multiple gunshot wounds, where the um, needle decompression was done, but the thoracostomy needle ended up low, in this case, the seventh intercostal space. Um, and we've had a few of these cases referred to us. Um, I think it's, it reminds us of how challenging some of these uh, skills can be, especially when done in a moving vehicle. In this case, this was a 40-year-old male. Uh, he was alert but lethargic, very diaphoretic, multiple gunshot wounds, including the shoulder, the armpit, the uh, left thigh, the knee, the shoulder, and bicep. 
He had diminished lung sounds on the left side, clear lung sounds on the right, and the crew did a needle thoracostomy. The first one was not successful, so they did a second needle thoracostomy. At that time, they did get blood return, and EMS did hear air movement when listening to the breath sounds. En route to the hospital, the patient became hypotensive. Uh, fluids were opened and one liter was administered. And the patient was reevaluated multiple times while in transport, but remained alert and lethargic. Dr. Drazic? You know, this case is another one that really exhibits the reality of, of providing real life care, care to patients. There was a fantastic recognition of decreased uh, lung sounds on the left, um, appropriate intervention of getting those needles in, in place. Unfortunately, at arrival to the hospital, they were discovered to be uh, in the wrong place. Uh, they were both low enough to be injuring the diaphragm of that patient, and that was discovered in the OR. Now, I wanna remind you, we don't review these uh, to review, to really focus on individual care that's provided as much as we look at this and say, well, geez, how can I, as a medical director, help improve the system? Because we recognize care is provided in real time, in a real life situation, mistakes happen. And like everything in life, there are successes and there are struggles. And so our job is to really maximize the success aspects and um, set you guys up for the hard work you do in the field for every chance of success. So like Linda mentioned, we've had a few cases recently where the, the um, needle decompressions um, haven't been in the correct site. Now, it in the chaos of the scene, is very hard to identify, especially we know differing body habitus presents an additional challenge of figuring out where exactly to get that needle in place. As Dr. Arenovich mentioned, we do have a product that might be out to you soon that helps you identify um, the, the correct site. But in the meantime, I just wanna review some of the basics of anatomy. When we're looking at, at doing these needle thoracostomies in uh, the side of the chest here, where are our landmarks and what are we looking for? Looking through our guidelines, you know, we want to look between that fourth and fifth intercostal space in the mid-axillary line. What does that mean? Our landmarks are the armpit. That's the mid-axillary line. You want to go right for the center of the axilla. The other landmark we want to look at is between the fourth and fifth rib space. Now in the field, no one expects you to be counting ribs. And in real life, even if I have a completely calm room, there is no way of actually counting down and getting to the right place. So our landmark in men becomes the nipple line. In women, it generally becomes the inframammary line, which is the line formed by the connection of the very base of the inferior breast and the chest wall. What you do is you look for that nipple line or the inframammary line, go laterally to that mid axillary space and generally go right above the rib that you will find right there in those crosshairs. And we generally wanna go right above the, the rib because as a reminder of uh, anatomy, our nerves and our blood vessels track right on the bottom 
of each rib. So in order to avoid those nerves and blood vessels, you kind of hug the top of the rib that you are of the space where you're going in. Dr. Arendovich did a great job of also reminding us on our landmarks for pericardiocentesis, which is you go in at the subxiphoid area at a 45 degree angle towards that left shoulder while aspirating. Back to you, Linda. Thank you. Our third and final case is a thoracic trauma case and that question of whether it's a penetrating injury or a lacerating injury. Um, in this case, this was a 27-year-old male, uh, was transported to a local hospital, not the trauma center, um, after he said he was walking down the street and that he was randomly stabbed with a four-inch knife uh, to the anterior chest. Um, the outside hospital called a trauma alert, and the patient was transferred to the trauma center out at Freighters. Um, and again, the hospital's concern was based off our trauma guidelines, um, any penetrating wound to the torso, regardless of suspicion, you know, should that be transported or transferred to the trauma center? So the details from the EMS unit is uh, the patient was alert and oriented, complained of pain, secondary to being stabbed slash cut. Um, so the weapon was uh, similar to a kitchen knife. Um, and on assessment, they noted a half inch to one inch laceration to the left chest with minor bleeding. Uh, now the crew did a great job of documenting their assessment and their medical decision-making. The patient presented with patent airway, normal breathing, no distress, lung sounds were clear. Uh, they described their uh, wound examination as a superficial laceration without presence of bubbling or any other signs of severe penetrating chest trauma involving the chest wall, compromise, or hemodynamic instability. The wound was dressed with a tegaderm, bleeding was controlled, and there were no assessment findings throughout the duration of care that would suggest airway compromise, severe blood loss, or anything else that would warrant ALS care or a trauma alert. Uh, and due to their working assessment, they chose the closest uh, destination as the most appropriate. And they note that the patient was continuously monitored, reassessed, and no significant changes occurred in the patient's condition. And again, they provided great documentation of their medical decision-making. And uh, we note this challenge of, is it a penetrating or a lacerating wound? Dr. Drazek? Once again, such a fantastic case for learning. Um, and I think this actually brings me back to a time back in my training in residency where I had a very similar presentation to the ED. Um, a patient who had walked into the emergency uh, department uh, said she had fallen uh, and she was noted to have a laceration to her back. Um, there at our institution, she was immediately called as a trauma and brought to the trauma bay. Um, and when we did a CT scan on her, even though she was up, walking, no bubbling, um, you know, all of the great physical exam findings that were noted in this case, she had four centimeters of a knife uh, remaining in her back. And this really 
again, speaks to the challenge of identifying um, some of these things in the field. Even with the very, very best physical exam, um, which was very thorough and very appropriate in this case, there is truly no way of determining the depth um, when the mechanism itself, and I'm not saying uh, is your assessment that this is necessarily penetrating, but is the mechanism a penetrating mechanism? You know, if it's a stab wound, if it's a gunshot wound, you know, that's penetrating by the very mechanism of uh, injury. Um, so, you know, what I would really stress in this point is that everything you do and look for in the field is extremely important. And if you note those positive fi findings, say decreased lung sounds on one side, say, um, you know, you're bubbling up the chest, say it's open to the lung and you see that, well, that is perfect. But what I want to really stress here is just because all of that is normal does not mean the wound is not penetrating. And that's because we can't dissect this in the field. And really without a CT scan or the operating room in the ED itself, I can't really determine the extent of injury until I really numb up the area, probe it very deeply or do a uh, some very advanced imaging to determine where that is. Likewise, auscultation, listening for lung sounds for pneumothorax is actually very insensitive. And what I mean by that is even in the best of circumstances where you have a quiet room, what percentage of pneumothoraxes have diminished lung sounds? It's actually a pretty low number. So by hearing lung sounds, that doesn't rule out a pneumothorax. So this is just, I think, a reminder, a good reminder to us all. And I want to commend the uh, commend the crew here on appropriate um, on really appropriate exam and workup of this patient. And, you know, it sounds like they are really thinking through very excellent care in the field. But this is just a reminder to us all is that when the mechanism is penetrating, when it's in any of those areas, the head, the neck, the torsos, the extremities proximal to the elbow or knees, that is considered a trauma. And you've really got to think about getting that patient to a trauma center. Once again, thanks so much for all you do in the field. Real life is challenging. Thanks for your dedication for improvement, ongoing education, and making our system better. Thank you, Dr. Drasic, and thanks, Linda. Some nice cases there, uh, kind of outlining what we're talking about today and really showing how uh, these interventions, these assessments uh, are a real thing and not just some concept that we talk about in class, that they do happen in the field. Uh, on the topic of LSIs and some of the interventions that we do, um, to grab Dr. Chin one more time um, in his role on the chairing the uh, new product evaluation committee, and he has a new one that's, I believe, being approved for the system, uh, Dr. Chin. Hey, Jeff, thanks for throwing it back to me. I'll make this short and sweet. So uh, for the new product evaluation committee, the members of the committee just evaluated a device called the SAM Thoracite. Uh, it's a basically an anatomical landmark guide. It's a single-use template um, that is designed to basically find what's called the safe window, uh, sorry, safe zone window. Um, and it's basically placed in the axilla and it has a, 
uh, a portion of this uh, guide that's open for, for you to perform needle thoracostomy. The idea is to kind of uh, limit uh, any needle thoracostomies that occur outside of this safe window. Uh, it effectively looks at uh, between the anterior and the mid axillary lines of the third, fourth, or fifth intercostal space. Uh, you simply place this single use guide into the axilla appropriately and it identifies this window. Um, we've evaluated this product through the new product evaluation committee. There's a single study published on it that does seem to show effectiveness and safety associated with it. Uh, and we've uh, moved forward with a recommendation to the system to allow for adoption. Obviously, that formal process goes through uh, your division director and medical director. Um, but uh, at this time, we feel like this probably is a, a good step based on the uh, quality um, uh, issues that have been brought up on the last segment by Linda and uh, Dr. Drazich. Um, we think it might be a, a good uh, utilized product uh, moving forward. So uh, with that, I'll turn it back to Jeff. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Chin. Uh, and with that, that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. I thank the whole team for joining me today for a nice discussion on thoracic trauma. Uh, further reminder, if you do have any questions or comments and want to get in touch with anybody in the office uh, for our QA team, their email is qualityems at milwaukeecountywi.gov. And if you have any questions for education, it's emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov. Uh, we love hearing from you. Any suggestions for future podcast ideas uh, or anything that else that you'd like to have answered or present to the team, uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, with that, stay safe, and we will talk to you next month.